Today is Wednesday. It's March 8th, 2023. It's 242, and Butler is in the first half against St. John's. This is John Williams, and this is the Mincing Rascals podcast. Portions of this are often broadcast on WGN Radio Saturday nights at 8. You can hear me weekdays on WGN Radio from 10 to 2. Hey, it's John Hansen on WGN Radio Monday through Thursday at 6 p.m. Also, Block Club Chicago and WCIU. Hey, what's up? Brandon Pope at WCIU and WBEZ as well as uh, other places that pay me. Good to see you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this is Eric Zorn. I'm with the Picayune Sentinel. I started it. I write it. I'll mail it to you. You just email me, ericzorn at gmail.com, and you can... Get a free subscription. What a deal, man! <laughs> I'm wearing it's a good one too. I'm wearing my Butler baseball sweatshirt. My son went to Butler. He played baseball there. Hence the Butler baseball sweatshirt. Butler's playing in uh, the Big East tournament. Probably about to get eliminated from St. John's. They're having a down year. And as you have goes, the strangest sports fandoms. I'm sorry to interrupt. John, but you have these little teams that you, not that they're little, they're a big basketball team that you just gleam onto, right? DePaul, you love going to. Butler, aren't you a big Marquette guy too, or is am I thinking of C. Bertrand? That's I don't Bertrand. know. But. And, and aren't they all in the same conference? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so whenever I go to the DePaul games, season ticket holder and Butler, those are my two teams, the two worst teams in the conference. And that's been my year for the last couple of years. So when I go, I'm always, it's just, it's tough. Although both DePaul and Butler beat Xavier, a top five team for much of the year. So that was kind of a highlight for us. Anyway, the two teams meet at Wintrust Arena. DePaul plays Butler. It was the most serene experience I've ever had watching a basketball game because I knew I wasn't going to be happy and I knew (laughs) I wasn't going to be especially sad because one of my teams would win. I was like weirdly agnostic about the outcome. I was like, eh, whatever. I didn't get up and cheer or lose my mind once like I normally do. Eric, you're all about Michigan. Yeah, they're playing Rutgers on Thursday, and I think they can get by Rutgers, and then if they do, they'll have to play Purdue, and I don't like their chances. They've been blowing close games all year. And the whole Big Ten kind of sucks, if I'm being honest. I'm an Ohio State guy. Well, Ohio State, I think you're wrong. Ohio State sucks. I think that the the middle of the pack in the Big Ten has been kind of fun this year. Wasn't it crazy that Northwestern in their last game of the year, the regular season, if they won, they were the two Two seed seed in the big tournament. If they lost, they were the nine. Was it nine? Yeah, yeah. Nine. Doesn't that prove my point? Northwestern (laughs) is the two seed in the Big Ten? It's a down year. Can't say that here. What Northwestern's done this year is they've got a bunch of guys who've played four years together. This is not a portal team. This is a team that has played for four years together. They got uh, one of the best guard tandems in the country. Well, and and, Nan- and their their center Nance from last year, he thought he'd go big time and go to North Carolina. And I don't believe North Carolina is going to make the tournament. And they, I, I watched them get blown out by Duke. Yeah, um, the other night. So, so it's uh, I didn't get blown out, but they lost. And they they started the year ranked number two in the country, right? Yeah, yeah. and wow. then they've just gone they've just gone nowhere. So, uh, but you know, Northwestern could be the great uh, story. It could be the Loyola story yeah. of, of this year. I mean, they they could go. I mean, they could go a long way in the tournament. You never know. The, the team has pulled off some incredible upsets. More sports talk on the music. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, uh, maybe that was just the sort of uh, 
palate cleanser to last week's podcast because we spent almost every minute of it talking about the mayor's race on the heels of the you know first round of the election. Uh, to that, I just wanted to mention what Mary Schmeek, the longtime Tribune columnist now on Facebook, has written about Mayor Lori Lightfoot. And Eric, you reposted this, did you not, on the Picayune Sentinel? I'm going to publish it in tomorrow's Picayune Sentinel. I sent you an advanced copy of it. But yeah, I mean, I, I, Mary, Mary's Facebook posts usually turn into columns on my uh, on my uh, Substack newsletter. So yeah. Well, let me just bounce a few. She had nine points, nine thoughts on the Chicago's mayor race. And I won't go into all of them, but let me just read you a couple of things you guys react. If you don't live in Chicago, she said, Lori Lightfoot wasn't merely a victim of racism, sexism, and fear of crime. Sure, racism, sexism, and fear of crime are real and potent forces, but Lori Lightfoot was defeated in significant part by her temperament and her behavior. We all agree with that, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I was a little confused by her reference to racism, sexism, fear of crime, because I don't think racism and sexism had anything to do with why she lost the race not when she won with 75 percent of the vote four years ago well here's her next point chicagoans did not overwhelmingly elect lightfoot the first time because a measly third of the voting population actually voted in that election so while she famously won every ward most folks didn't show up for that well i don't know what's your reaction to that john i People show up who show up and vote. Every year, people try and claim every election. If only this block of people voted, blah, 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 blah. It never really bears out to any actual data that shows that if more people vote, different people will get elected. I never had the feeling. Go ahead, Eric. No, I I mean, I I, I disagree with my former colleague and friend Mary on that point. I I think that, that, uh, yeah, I mean, you can true of almost any election in this country. You don't get perfect turnout. But generally, the people who do turn out to vote are reflective of the feelings of people who didn't turn out to vote. I think that Lori Lightfoot took the city by storm four years ago. That there was a lot of enthusiasm for her everywhere you looked, and it wasn't just that the, her her backers turned out to vote. I think there was a lot of hope, a lot of expectation that she was going to be a real different kind of mayor. And uh, and that seventy four percent vote was was no fluke. People were really ready for somebody new. They were ready for someone who was not. Tony Preckwinkle and tied to the old political operation. And uh, so, you know, I think Chicagoans really, really did embrace her four years ago. Well, you made the point last week, too, Eric, that her race, her sex, her orientation, even her height have probably been obstacles for her to overcome in her life. And that she has achieved says a lot about her. So to Mary's point, yes, those have been difficult things probably for her personally, but it was her temperament that was her Achilles heel. But she did write, give credit where credit is due. Lightfoot genuinely cares about Chicago, and the fact that as a woman, black and gay, won a fifth term in City Hall really did open a window to a broader vision of what a Chicago mayor can look like. That is so true. I mean, the the city of big shoulders, the stackers of wheat, and here's this diminutive little lady that comes out and she goes, I'm the mayor of Chicago. I thought that was kind of cool. I mean, she embodied the mentality that Chicagoans like to say that embodies their town right i mean she she was tough you know no bones about it right but she took it too far i think that's 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 really what the issue was is like yes being the city's cheerleader is part of the job being the city's ultimate defender is part of the job um but also you got to work with the people who are also working to improve the city and she didn't seem too interested in doing that 
of the nine points, number seven on Mary Schmeek's list. And by the way, she won a Pulitzer Prize. So I wish she was here to better present her side than I am, because it seems like I'm just cherry-picking things and then saying, oh, yeah, huh. But uh, Mary can withstand my analysis. Anyway, number seven, if only Arne Duncan had run, the choice would be easy. I can't tell you, she wrote, how often I've heard that from friends black and white. But sigh, he didn't. So here we are. He would have had a strong shot, but I don't know if he would have won. And nobody's won yet, but he would have made the playoffs. Let's say the runoff. Yeah, I, he would have had. A, he would have been a strong contender. But I think it speaks to what kind of job it was about to be, what kind of job the mayor's job is. That people like him, people like Mike Quigley, were like, "No, nah, I'm good." Um, <laughs> it, it, uh, like it's it, it's it's a lot spiraling with this job. Whether it's the crime issues that. Can you really blame a mayor for rising crime? How much culpability do you give to a mayor for that? How much control do they have over that? Like, it feels like a losing battle. It feels like a, a job where you're destined to sort of, like, just not please enough people anyway. So I get why Arnie Duncan was like, no, nah, I'm good. I get why Quigley was like, I'm going to pass on this one. Um, and it's kind of surprising, I feel like, that Lightfoot even went for a, a second term. It, there was a great article from The Atlantic um, that talked, it, it was, well, I, I don't want to say great article. It was an eye-opening article, a bit silly in its assertion, but it said that big cities are ungovernable. Yeah. And they argued that uh, Lori Lightfoot appeared like she did not even want a second term, um, which I would agree with. Why did she not do what Keisha Lance Bottoms did and just pay a corporate job and bow out? May have been better off doing that than what happened here. I think that's why she conceded so early. I think she knew what the writing was on the wall, and yeah. I don't know. I don't know if her heart was all in it, right? To concede at eight forty at night when there's still, uh, I don't know, fifty percent of the vote still out. Uh, I the the idea of someone knowing that someone would have or wouldn't have made it is so. Uh, I just find it to be a silly exercise to do. I mean, let's say Chewy Garcia hadn't run. A lot of us today would be saying, if only Chewy, Gar- Chewy Garcia would have run. <laughs> got fourth. Like you don't know. Like we don't know. Like these. Elections have the life of their own, right? These candidates have these winding up and down moments, and it's impossible to tell. Maybe. The same article talks about Philadelphia's Mayor Jim Kenney, who was uh, quoted recently as saying that uh, he says, there's not an event or a day where I don't lay on my back and look at the ceiling and worry about stuff. So I'll be happy when I'm not here, when I'm not mayor and I can enjoy some stuff. So he's talking about that. Now, if you just to refresh any listeners' memories, Arnie Duncan was the CEO of the Chicago Public Schools after Vallis, and he was, then he went on to be the uh, U.S. Education Secretary for eight years, and he's now involved in anti-violence initiatives around the city. So he would have had a pretty good resume for a city where education and crime are two huge issues. Uh, how he would have fared against Paul Vallis if Vallis had gotten in, I, I don't know if the two of them are playing Alphonse and Gaston with this or not, if they were saying, you know, no you, no you. Uh, but if they had run against each other, two former school CEOs, they might have just canceled each other out and you might have two, two other candidates. So I, I'm not sure Mary's right about that, but but Duncan is a fairly attractive candidate. There were there's some issues with you know school closings and, and so on and the, and the whole race to the top initiative and, and uh, its emphasis on testing that would have would have bothered him. So I mean, we, we still would have had a challenge from the left from someone like Brandon Johnson, who is uh, representing the interests of the teachers union, who didn't like Arnie Duncan. They don't like any of the superintendents. So, But Arnie uh, wouldn't anyway. have been getting money from the far right that Paul Vallis is, right? Probably not. Well, money's got to go somewhere. So who's, <laughs> who, who's the furthest right on the spectrum if Arnie Duncan's in the race? 
I don't know. I guess Paul Vallis gets it, and then, but if he's not running, maybe I don't know. I guess what I'm really saying there is, uh, is I asked you this on the radio the other day, Eric. Is that an issue? Like, do you care that the people that endorse some of those positions? I'm sure Brandon Johnson's going to try and mine this in the campaign now. Do you associate him with more far right leaning groups and causes? Well, it, it starts to, Bill, when you have Ken Griffin, who was the guy who campaigned so hard against the graduated income tax, uh, supporting uh, supporting Vallis. When you have Dan Proft, the really conservative radio host, kind of grudgingly supporting Vallis. You've got Willie Wilson, who was, I think, the, probably the furthest right candidate, even further right than Vallis, supporting Vallis. That you start to realize that people are picking teams here, and the guys who are on Vallis's side are are much more to the right than people who run Brandon Johnson's team. Well, does Willie Wilson's uh, endorsement help or hurt, or is it in the middle? Oh, I think it helps. Really? Yeah. Well, I guess so. I guess it just shows you that I didn't vote for Willie Wilson. But I guess 10% 10 did, and uh, so they'll maybe say, what should we do now, Willie? And obviously it would be to Paul Vallis over Brandon Johnson. Uh, Maybe not obviously, but that's what happened. Does Lori Lightfoot's endorsement help or hurt a candidate, Brandon? I don't think think he's going to endorse, and I don't think – helps i don't think it helps anybody in particular i think Lori lightfoot's would help more than willie wilson's especially since Lori lightfoot did well with black voters on the south side right that was, that's yeah, where she won i don't think she will either for the record I, I think that would be actually inappropriate for her too but uh, it'd be interesting here's why i think the willie one would be bigger so yes she won black voters on the south and west side but i'm not sure she won black voters on the south and west side because <laughs> They were overwhelmingly just like, yes, she's the best candidate for black interests. Uh, Black voters who tend to lean conservative, uh, they tend to also lean of let's go with I hate this terminology, but let's go with the devil we know instead of trying something different. Um, And Lightfoot for them was who they know. They've already seen her in action. So let's see it. Let's 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 give her another shot in a sense. I think that's the sentiment that was going on there. I don't think that is the same as the kind of popularity that's around willie wilson like willie wilson has this following that is strong and unwavering of conservative black voters more conservative leaning black voters especially the church crowd that's the type of people paul vallis needs who are going to go to the polls they go and vote they are the ones who have the energy they're the ones that vote early that's what paul vallis needs to win this election so i feel like that's that willie wilson side He's one of the greatest phenomenons in all of politics because it's like, how is this guy gaining the support? But he has it, and it's not changing. And I think that I think his voters are going to go right there to him. I think right. they can't be and discounted. Right, and he's wide. Willie Wilson is widely credited with bringing a lot of conservative black voters over to Lori Lightfoot four years ago yeah. when they were very dubious about having a gay woman be mayor. And he went. I think he went to the churches and he said, "Don't hold that against her. She's she's our people. We want her elected." And I think I, I mean that's why I think Lori uh, Lightfoot owed Wilson uh, yeah. a bigger debt than she was willing to pay, and and that was a really critical mistake on her political uh, own goal uh, not to bring Wilson in to, to her administration somehow. But uh, you know I think Brandon makes a good point that that a lot of black voters are more conservative than we, than we may think, and also a lot of Hispanic voters, and they're going to be pivotal to this. I know they didn't turn out in the numbers that we were expecting, that they were expecting, and certainly that Chewy Garcia was hoping for. But that's a fairly conservative 
voting bloc also. They're, they're not going to automatically vote for Brandon Johnson because he's a member of an ethnic minority. They, I think Vallis is going to do pretty well with the Hispanic voters who turn out. I just want to make one point. to and I think I agree with all of what you guys are saying. Brandon, you say that Vallis needs Willie Wilson's voters. I would say Brandon Johnson needs Willie Wilson they voters. Paul Vallis can win without that vote. Them. True. Very true. I think they both need them. I, I still find it hard to see Paul Vallis winning a race for mayor without, you know, key black support. And I think it's going to be easier for Brandon Johnson to get that support given Vallis's uh, uh, history, past comments. Yeah, so but, but he has I, having Willie Wilson there helps that. But he is getting endorsements from prominent blacks, Vallis's, yeah. uh, Sawyer's. Well, well, yeah, he got, he got Sawyer, he got. Uh, Jesse White and Walter Walter Burnett, so he's mm-hmm. he's, he's he's putting together some endorsements. And I don't, again, I, we're not sure. John and I we spoke spoke about this on the radio about how important these endorsements are or should be, but they are giving voters permission for they're giving black voters permission to vote for for Vallis, and that that could be that could be very important. I asked J.B. Pritzker if he was going to endorse anybody. He said no. He said, I've got to work with whoever the mayor is, so I'm not going to endorse one candidate, have him lose, and then have to work with that person, you know, work with the other person. So I I guess that's the smart play, but have the courage of your convictions. Tell us what, what you like. Why? Yeah. Well, because you're an influencer, because you're in the game, because you know more about uh, – like you're the governor of Illinois – Shouldn't you know a little bit more about what or who would be a good mayor of Chicago than me or anybody else? You're the governor of Illinois. What do we need? Who should we vote for? What's going to make the city better? You're sitting on your hands? You have to work with whoever is the mayor, and you don't want to do it on a losing term, not oh. to say that politicians don't end up working together and they endorse other people. I don't know, John. I just I, – I, I would not – want the governor wading into well god forbid we hurt your feelings uh, suppose he <laughs> suppose he endorses vallis and johnson wins i'll bet they could patch things up look how okay. accommodating the rest of the republicans were after donald trump scorched them for two years well i think i think your point is valid and like go out there and stand for something i'm thinking that from the political side there's no upside to governor pritzker endorsing anyone and i completely respect making a political decision because that's how politics are played. <laughs> but like, I, I kind of see both sides here. I get why Pritzker wouldn't. But, John, I'm kind of with you. Like, Pritzker is a guy who has made a lot of his campaign, a lot of his political life about being this progressive, right? You've got a prime race here that gives you two very differing visions for the third largest city in America – um, and there's one that clearly aligns better with the politics, values, and beliefs that you claim to espouse. Yes, and who is that, Brandon? One of, one of the <laughs> well, candidates does. It's, it's Brandon Johnson. Yeah, it's, Bra- it's Brandon Johnson. Yeah. So, you know, if you think that Ron DeSantis, who is, you know, anti-critical race theory and says all these things, is bad for America and bad for Florida – well, how about the candidate who <laughs> yeah, is aligned with Ron right. DeSantis? He, he goes he out of his way Chicago? to criticize people in Florida like that matters to us. How about we right. got skin in the game in Chicago? And so funny, I said to him, all right, well, what what does the city need? Just tell us what, prescribe for us what we should have. And then he started to talk about things Brandon Johnson is talking about. You know, I have opinions about issues. I just laid some out. I, I wouldn't want a candidate who wasn't focused on education 
uh, reducing crime, making sure that we're keeping people healthy. Uh, there are a lot of issues that are important to the city of Chicago. Remember, I'm a resident of the city of Chicago, so it matters an awful lot to me. But the way personally. you just put that makes it sound like a Brandon Johnson vote as opposed to a Paul Vallis vote. And so I said, <laughs> OK, you're not going to tell us who it is, but I think you just told us who it is. You're going to vote for Brandon Johnson. You're not going to say that, but you just described his platform. Well played, John. He also Let didn't tell you me. the big bucks. <laughs> I, no, it was not a great interview. I was trying to get something out of him and I felt. I was, oh, it was great. It was. A, I enjoyed it. Uh, well, uh, I didn't, but thank you. You know, we just all walk away from these interviews going, I wish yes. I had said this or I wish he had said that. I wasn't that interested in, are you going to run for president? Are you the break the glass candidate? But I felt I had to ask that too. If Joe Biden doesn't run, he'll be in the race. But I think Joe Biden's going to run. John, where's yeah. your head on mm-hmm. that? Same place. Same place. How about you, Eric? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I, I mentioned uh, to you the other day, John, about this uh, Washington Post list of possible candidates who would take over if Biden didn't win and or Biden didn't run? And there, he, they listed nine Democrats, and, and Pritzker was the last one that they listed. They had uh, Buttigieg and and uh, Gavin Newsom and Jared Polis and Gretchen Whitmer and the vice boy, president uh, Ber- Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris. Right? They, they had a whole bunch of other Democrats. And, oh yeah. But they said, but the, this, art, this article in the New York Times points out that the Democrats would have three point five billion reasons. <laughs> to ask J.D. Pritzker to step in. One for each dollar. Biden, yeah. you know, one for each dollar <laughs> in his war chest. So I, I think I think I would give Pritzker, if Biden steps out, I would give Pritzker uh, decent odds of winning that nomination, given yeah. his record here in Illinois, a very progressive record in Illinois. Uh, he's a good speaker. He's, he's a, I mean, I think he's a, a fairly charismatic politician. And, and he, there's no scandals in his past except, you know, some long ago conversations with Rod Blagojevich. Um <clears throat> so I think he could be a he could be a plausible presidential candidate and maybe we'll see him in four years. Uh, yeah. Yeah, if it would be I, him versus I, Trump, it'd be the golden toilet versus the home with no toilets. That's what I was thinking. When he said there's no scandal except I thought the toilets, right? Uh, the toilets, yeah. <laughs> no, it's he the did Well all he did what's the scandal with Blagojevich except that he pined for a job that he was looking for something from Blago, but he didn't do anything what, wrong, did he? What did he say? He said something he to be about, treasurer. Uh, no, Bla- he, about Blago. Jesse White being, being, oh, that's clean, right. being clean or something. I mean, it was some weird Safe choice. Did it have to do with Obama's uh, seat? Was no, no, well, he wasn't trying for Obama's seat. He was trying to be appointed something else. Yeah. He was looking yeah. for a, a foot in the door. But you know the toilets thing, yeah, it was everything he did was legal, but pretty pretty sketchy. If so. I have three point five billion dollars, and I don't want to spend a lot of money on real estate taxes, <clears throat> but the way to get out of some property taxes is to make my one home inhabitable by removing toilets, and therefore I don't have to pay property <laughs> taxes on it. I'm going to pay the taxes. Oh my God! I thought you, you were going the a, other way, John. That's why. <laughs> that's me why too. I was like, <laughs> wait, what? What? That's I thought you were going to say, have... "I'm getting rid of those toilets." <laughs> that's what I thought he was going to say too. <laughs> it's like that's why you don't have three point five billion dollars. Not, <laughs> really? not thinking like a, not thinking like a billionaire. Yeah, right, right. I'm thinking like a good, solid citizen. Uh, Mary Schmeek said about Lori Lightfoot. Finally, get some rest, Mayor Lightfoot. Um, she said, Lori Lightfoot, get some deserved rest. She worked hard. 
uh, many of us who didn't vote for her, uh, this is Mary Schmeek writing, wish her well and are grateful for her service. David Grising in the Tribune last week, when Austin Berg and the rest of us were saying, we can't think of any lasting legacy of Lori Lightfoot's that's positive. We're thinking about all of these misfires because of her personality. But Grising had a nice piece where he said, Look at the investment in the south and west side. And shoot, I don't have it in front of me now, and I'm not recalling it off the top of my head. But in his piece, he had a full paragraph of things. He concluded it by saying, the city is better off having had her as mayor for four years. It sure didn't sound like that on the radio and TV and newspapers last week. But from the Better Government Association, Grising, who was a solid Tribune reporter, said that. And I was glad to see it. So thank you, Lori, for your service. I will always remember the the Lori Lightfoot cutouts that people would put up in their windows, her standing there <laughs> defiantly. And I guess if I were to say anything, it would be I'm, I'm glad we – I appreciate having a mayor who followed science and followed a public health department and making decisions. And that's something that every city I don't think uh, is able to say. So then in the Chicago Sun-Times, Frank Spielman wrote about the scheduling conflict the city has. July 2nd NASCAR event is going to prevent Taste of Chicago from taking place at Grant Park. The plan now is to move to the little park in front of Navy Pier, move Taste of Chicago to this little (laughs) entrance area in front of Navy Pier. In her story about this, Franz Spielman began with, Lame Duck Mayor Lori Lightfoot's plan, dot, dot, dot. And I thought, really? (laughs) Do we have, I mean, we know she lost. But the idea is ridiculous. Taste of Chicago in front of Navy Pier. On the same weekend as NASCAR. Oh, yeah. Would it be? Would it be? Would it line up then? Yeah. Although, although, um, at one point, Taste of Chicago was like nine days, wasn't it? It was 10 days. And they made millions of dollars. And then what? It went through a year of – I was looking this up last night, about six or seven years where it ended up in the red. (laughs) I mean, it's been this giant shrinking and – we talked this a little bit on, on the radio last night with Mary Vandeval bringing up a good point. I was wondering because, boy, Taste of Chicago, as a kid growing up in the suburbs, that was a thing we did yep. every single year. Yep. And it was timed out to the fireworks, and we always did that as a family. And Mary brought up the great point, our traffic reporter on GN. Every neighborhood now has a festival. Every suburb has summer festivals. There isn't quite the pull. So maybe actually the Taste of Chicago scaling down a little bit more, putting it on a weekend where there are going to be a lot of visitors into town already. It'll be chaotic. I know Brandon hates that, but I I don't know if it's the worst idea to continue to scale it to a point where it can actually either be net neutral or at least not lose a bunch of money. I'm probably the only one in this panel who remembers when Taste of Chicago was on Michigan Avenue. They blocked off Michigan Avenue. And that was for at least one year. I remember. No, I was. And, that was one of my first years. But yeah, that was. Yeah. And that was and, so and exciting. It was crazy. It was an event. It's well. It's, I think it's a great idea and, a, and and usually pretty well run. I haven't been to it a lot when it's in Grant Park. But uh, yeah, it's it's really too bad that it's uh, that it's fading out and being pushed to the margins. Because it's a it's a really good showcase for a lot of. I mean, there are a lot of restaurants that made a lot of money, and it maybe even saved their years. Oh, really? A, really? A, a I think so. Yeah, and and it also dro- drove traffic to their, to their restaurants down the line. So yeah, I think I think there's a a big history of, of restaurant successes through Taste of Chicago. That's it. It's a it's a great event, and uh, I was just thinking about events on Navy Pier. I, I also remember when Chicago Fest was on Navy Pier back before Navy Pier had been improved, 
And uh, it was this kind of scuzzy little warehouse district out on the pier, and they had all these musical acts out there and everything. So it's not a terrible place to have uh, an event, but I, I just don't know if that space is big enough out there mm-hmm. in front of the pier to accommodate a proper taste of Chicago. It's yeah, that's my big question. They'd have to stretch it out. Like it just seems like logistically doesn't make much sense. No, no. Navy Pier is a long pier out into the water, but that space is already right. taken. And then you have this park area in front of it. What's the name of the uh, curvy condominium at the base of Navy Pier? There, the, the Lake way, Point Towers. Lake Point Towers. So, and then you've got a little bit of a beach just to the north, but it's all kind of. You don't have much room to expand there. You you could have a niblet of Chicago. You could barely even have a taste of Chicago. There would just be this little <laughs> tiny baby thing. Speaking of Navy Fear Pier, TripAdvisor asked its subscribers or people that use it to rate the places they've been to. And the number one ranked tourist attraction in America is the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. The Grand Canyon is number two. And number three might surprise you guys. It's the Mackinac Bridge in Michigan. Oh, Cool. They all get millions of folks. The first thing to appear from Chicago is number nine on the list, just below the National Mall in Washington, D.C., and it's Millennium Park. And 71% rate that as excellent. The thing that gets the lowest rating, though, or one of the lowest ratings in America, is said Navy Pier. And and I've been to Navy Pier a few times during the pandemic. I don't know if we're still in the pandemic. But I've been pleasantly surprised when I go out there anymore. You know, they got all the boats on the south side dock there, something for you. There are beer gardens and things and places to have a drink. You've got, obviously, the theater, the Shakespeare Theater, the Ferris wheel. You know, the food courty stuff in the middle is kind of chintzy, but uh, don't do that. I just think it's an... It's a nice view of the city. They've got that hotel with the bar lounge thing on top, which is a great drink in the city. So I think it doesn't get much respect. Boy, it sure doesn't on TripAdvisor, 40%. But I think the people that made up their mind about Navy Pier a long time ago, hey, if you've got nothing to do, find your way over there sometime and see if it hasn't changed. I think Navy Pier is the hip thing for people in the city to hate, right? Like it's, oh, that's just for visitors and for suburban people. It's it's not easy to get to anytime you have to like transverse a lower street to <laughs> yes. to get to there is not a pleasant pedestrian experience. Nope. nope. Uh, so I imagine out-of-towners maybe going from their hotel are wondering, am I, did I, am I really going in the right way? But I think it's it's nice for what it is, right? It used to be just an empty, essential old warehouse extension into the lake on a nice sunny day, a nice walk up and down it. That's all you need. Maybe the expectations are too high. Maybe it has too grand of a name uh, because it's pleasant when you just walk up and down it. Beautiful views. I get why people don't like it. If you're if you're in the city, take it from someone that goes to WBEZ and works there. It gets oh, a little right. annoying. What? You know, dodging tourists and little kids, and you just try to, you try to, you got something you got to do, and they in the way. So I, I, I get <laughs> that perspective. I totally, if that's, if that's the perspective of just like, I'm annoyed by the tourism and the commercialism and all of this, okay, I'm with you. But it really is a beautiful place. The, the, that view of the water, the, the boats, like, like you said, the offshore where the drinks are at, like, you got some of the best views in the city. Yeah, really no kidding. You sound a little like nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. Uh, or yeah. Yogi Berra. <laughs> do you think that's Do you think that's locals rating it lower? 
to bring down what I don't tourists understand feel it. about yeah, it? Because it is mostly a tourist thing. I don't think Chicagoans go there. Maybe suburbanites go there when their aunt comes in from out of town. <laughs> I don't know anybody who got up in the morning and goes, eh, let's go to Navy Pier. That just doesn't happen. You know what also does really poorly on this is Mall of America in Bloomington, Minnesota. You know, the Twin Cities, the big mall. I used to live a couple miles from there. I used to go there all the time. I thought it was fantastic. Figured is the Riverwalk anywhere on there? Because we are so blessed in everything they've done to our Riverwalk. It is not. And maybe because it just doesn't have the foot traffic yet. Because clearly, whenever they do the architecture boat tours, the Architecture Foundation, that's one of the top tourist stops in America. It always mm-hmm. gets the highest rankings. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to renew my suggestion that they name the River Walk for Rahm Emanuel. He's the guy who got that done. And nothing is named for Rahm Emanuel. Everybody thinks they have to hate Rahm Emanuel because he was, you know, he had his issues as a mayor. But he did that River Walk. And uh, it is spectacular. I agree with John Hansen. I think uh, and it's interesting to me, like the, the Mackinac Bridge is to you look at the bridge i mean it's it is an amazing bridge i give it that so is the golden gate but you just look at the bridge and that's all you do (laughs) drive over it (laughs) and and i you know i i'm told i think the grand canyon should be number one that's the most spectacular thing i've ever seen i think but uh the mac the mackinac bridge Bridge, that's number three somebody sent us a text after i read that on the radio eric and they said how much did the mackinac people bribe TripAdvisor (laughs) to move, move themselves up to number three on the list Locals maybe, voting, I'm telling you. Yeah, maybe Mackinac Island, which is which is an, an interesting place, but Mackinac Bridge. I, I, but that whole area. Well, I don't know where. It, I was up to Charlevoix, and I'm going to go up there again this um, this July. You guys have been to Northern Michigan and some of those towns up there uh, along the water. That's very nice. That is oh, yeah. really lovely, Eric. You you got roots in Michigan. Do you ever go up to the northern part of Michigan? I've been to Traverse City and Petoskey. We used to go Petoskey to Petoskey is camp. great. We, I love that. We we used to go to family camp up there, uh, right around Petoskey. So yeah, it is gorgeous up there for sure. I um, do find it interesting that Chicagoans are so split between Michigan retreat or Wisconsin retreat, and people that pick their state that is their state, and that's the only one they ever go to. We were a Wisconsin family. Oh, really? Yeah. Never visited Michigan. It was Rhinelander and uh, going up to uh, Manaqua. Wapaka. That's it. Never Michigan. I wanted to talk with you guys a little bit about Tucker Carlson and what he's been up to. But just humor me for this one other tangent, because when somebody said, how much did they have to pay to get moved up on the on the rating for Mackinac? um, I wanted to edit a tweet this week. So I (laughs) was on Twitter. I'd taken a picture from Gibson's Italia, the restaurant in Wolf Point, looking east on the river at dusk. The lights of the city were up. The sky was a beautiful glow. The moon was hanging over the river. And that's one of the best views in the city. If you're looking for an expensive dinner or drink, you pay for it with that view because it's just so, it's just so fantastic. So I took the picture of it. And then when I realized that I tweeted about it, I didn't um, tag the restaurant. And I thought, oh, I thought I should. So I went back and hit the buttons and then hit edit. And then it took me to, you can be a blue check mark for just $114.99. And then it told me I could edit with this blue check mark, but I can't now. I thought, you've got to be kidding me. I got to give you 115 bucks to edit my tweet. I'll, I'll either pull it down or let it sit. But 
140. Now, there would be other features that I would enjoy, and one of them would be that it would boost me in searches and rankings, which felt a little artificial, too. It's not organic that way. So it was just kind of an eye-opener as to how that business model is trying to work. They didn't get my money. I judge people that have the blue check mark that paid for it, and I suspect anything they tweet about it afterwards. I don't know why. I just I, – I don't like it. I know it's irrational. We all pay for certain things, and, that, and there's a lot of benefit to it. I think I'm bitter because I lost my blue check mark over the years because <laughs> I changed somewhere. I changed my name and apparently that dropped my blue check mark by just changing a few letters. Wow! And I couldn't get it back. I may do that because I still have a blue check mark and I think it is now a mark of shame. It used to be a mark uh, of, <laughs> of authenticity, but now it looks like you're one of those pathetic people who pay only fourteen dollars a year to get a blue check mark. Well, you need to change your and profile me. that says I did not pay for the blue. You know who pays for Twitter? Uh Paul Vallis pays for Twitter. He subscribed to Twitter Blue. Oh look at that. And claims he was hacked, but it's kinda of tough to get hacked when you pay for Eric, we cut you off. You were saying what? Oh, just that, that uh, I, I would like Twitter to take my blue check mark away because it makes me look bad. And I, I think it's this really terrible business model because you, you rely on, a, on, a, on, this, on this algorithm in Twitter that, that feeds you material that you're supposed to be your, up your alley through your interests. That, and if it's giving you stuff that's just posted by people who purchased the blue check mark, which could include all kinds of propagandists and bots and everybody else who wants to reach you, uh, it sort of destroys the whole purpose of having an algorithm. And I just I don't like the direction that Elon Musk is taking Twitter. And I'm still there because I still have a lot, find a lot of value in it. But uh, my its grip on me is getting more tenuous every day. House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy gave Fox News' Tucker Carlson thousands of hours, reportedly 40,000 hours. It's hard to imagine, but thousands of hours of video from the January 6th insurrection. Carlson is presenting his view on the attack on the Capitol and the effort to overthrow the peaceful transfer of power. Carlson said everything about the phrase deadly insurrection is a lie. It's two words, but he said everything about that phrase, deadly insurrection, is a lie. He continued to call the people that entered the Capitol sightseers, who were generally peaceful and involved in little more than mostly peaceful chaos. He said when you look at the video that he... (laughs) Brandon, I wish they could see your face right now. (laughs) But he... Then he shows video of showing even the shaman guy with the horns, you know, is walking peacefully throughout the Capitol. And he was presenting a view of them that made them look not like terrorists, but as peaceful tourists. Well, I I want to start by saying that I really wish that my Dish Network subscription allowed me to opt out of paying a couple bucks a month to support Fox News. That this is I I, I just hate that about these bundled services that you get the cable and Dish uh, satellite services uh, because I think that Fox has just become a propaganda arm. And I, the way Carlson has presented these videos is infamous and it's false. That you just have only to look at 
some of the video that we have seen of police officers being crushed and, and beaten by people and the way that they broke windows to get into the Capitol. There's absolutely no question in anybody's mind. And I was glad to see that at least some Republican senators yeah, this is came out and, and blasted the uh, what Fox was doing with this and, and agreed with the Capitol Police and others and said that, that uh, no, this was a very dangerous, very serious situation that uh, Officer Sicknick, I think his name was, who yep. died the, yep. the day after the... Uh, uh, being in that in that melee, uh, it was absolutely deadly. And and, and Ashley, uh, I forget the the name of the woman, Bab- Babbitt. Babbitt. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Who was who was shot? Uh, now she was a protester, but but it was a tense, violent, very scary situation. And Josh Hawley, the senator, was seen scampering away from everybody and you know running for his life. Yeah. Tucker <laughs> presented he, he, Tucker presented a, a more nuanced view of that, but but oh. keep going. <laughs> well, what, what was the nuance here? Oh, that he was the last one, one of the last people running through, if as you, if that matters. You saw other people coming. The video that you saw in the hearings only showed Kim, like he was this sole coward running away. Right, where they showed octogenarians running in front of him. I don't know if that makes Holly better or worse. <laughs> <laughs> that Leahy was faster than Holly. The whole thing is just, I mean... I think what the real problem is, this is a real political problem for Republicans. They do not win on January 6th. There is a small subsection of their party that believes it was overblown, that wants to hold vigils for people that are in jail because of this. But everyone else saw it with their own eyes, and our eyes don't lie. And our eyes also saw, I remember watching live on that day. I remember watching very peaceful people walking through the rotunda and still being fearful of what this could lead to and what ultimately did lead to. So I don't think that we are wrong that we saw peaceful people mixed in with a lot of violence as well, right? Like, I don't think Tucker Carlson opened our eyes to the fact that some of the people were just walking on through. And That's fair enough. But but when you did watch the January 6th hearings, you did not see them. So Tucker Carlson is trying to contextualize it to say, okay, he says, yes, there were hooligans and there were rioters. But mostly people were not beating the police. Now, granted, they gained entry because the people in front of them did. Uh, I'm not excusing it. I'm just saying that it to that particular point, it is true. Most of the people that entered the Capitol illegally entered the Capitol, but they didn't beat the police. Right. And also there was the video they showed of the QAnon shaman seemingly being, in some of the videos, almost led or walked peacefully. But again, this is just a very, you say new, I don't know the word for it, ignoring what is a real traditional police tactic, that if you are completely overmatched, you try and, you know, dis- right. well, what we hope to do is to ease tensions. Like when someone has a bomb on their chest <laughs> and they're taking hostages, you, you don't rush it, right? You, yeah. You you handle these things delicately. That is not evidence of assisting unless you just portray it that way. I I almost find that there's no coincidence that this is coming out right when the Dominion lawsuit is showing texts from Tucker Carlson to his uh, co-workers saying, we are very, very close to be able to ignore Trump most nights. I can't wait. I hate him passionately. This is Tucker Carlson texting right before January 6th. He says, what Trump is good at is destroying things. He's the undisputed world champion of that. He could easily destroy us if we play it wrong. Shocker that they came out on the night that Tucker Carlson is doing this. Like you call him a demonic force and a destroyer. I mean, the thing is, like, this is from the same folks who who uh, were very, very upset about 
the protests following the murder of George Floyd, or and and we're saying that uh, you know this is all, all this this violence. And the truth is that yeah, most of the people protesting the the murder of George Floyd were peaceful as well. Uh, most of the people who were who were involved in that d- did not do anything wrong, but but there were certain elements that were very violent, very destructive. So so to, to point out people who weren't doing something bad in that group of people where there were definitely agitators who were, I, mean, I don't even see the point of that. Uh, the people who were in the Capitol were breaking the law, and I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for them. I just wanted to quote from Clarence Page because he and you are on the same page, Eric. Clarence Page in the Tribune today said news accounts were most likely to describe the event as a deadly insurrection, but Carlson insists everything about that phrase is a lie. Quote, very little about January 6th was organized or violent, he says, which immediately, Clarence Page writes, reminded me of all the times I've heard from Carlson and his fellow TV conservatives lambaste the news media for noting that most of the Black Lives Matter protesters also were peaceful. These were not rioters, Carlson said. They were people who wandered over from a political rally. And then he has some of the numbers. Approximately 140 police officers were assaulted at the Capitol, including about 80 from the U.S. Capitol Police and 60 from the Metropolitan Police. The siege left five dead. Two of the officers died by suicide. The other officer died by natural causes the day after, quite possibly as a result of the assault and the chemicals that took place that day. And by the way, the people, very few of them are going to jail for years. Very few of them are going to jail for months. Most of them are going to jail for weeks. The nonviolent ones, right. Yeah, exactly. which is most of them. I mean, exactly. Carlson does have that point, but yeah, I think it's a big duh, right? Like, yeah, well, of course most of them were nonviolent. Right. But some of them were fantastically violent. People died, and the nonviolent people got in after the violent people went first. Yeah, one of my bigger I, – I paid attention, and I'm sure you all did, to the jam- – well, we talked about it here at the January 6th committee hearings. And for the most part, I thought they did a good job. There were some times I felt it was a little partisan in nature and you could almost feel like the Josh Hawley tape, which I, you know, everyone loved and howled at. And it was funny and it was a clip. What on was every the Josh Hawley tape? The, the clip of him only running through. They probably should have oh, played yeah. that. There was a lot of people running through just in the interest of, you know, showing it unfettered. But let's not forget this was supposed to be a Senate hearing. And who's calling out uh, Tucker Carlson, Republican senators? I feel like you would have had a much more balanced, even investigation with subpoena power on both sides. Mitch McConnell begged his Republican colleagues not to allow that hearing, not to allow that committee to be in the U.S. Senate, which is why the House had to pick it up and why it was hyperpartisan. And that, I think, is one of uh, Mitch McConnell's big mistakes, was not allowing a full hearing in the Senate where Usually cooler heads prevail. I was reading a summary of all of this. I think it was in Vanity Fair today, wherever it was. And they said, is this really a, a productive path for Republicans right now? They're trying to get this new identity, a lot of these mainstream Republicans, away from Trumpism. Um, and the more they have to think about or talk about January 6th, it doesn't help them do that because the voters have to wrestle with what of the impact of the Trump presidency, which was this historic and deadly attack on the Capitol. It's just the whole thing's a hot mess. I just I'm flabbergasted continually that this is such a that that people are even arguing there's a nuance to it. There's no nuance to it. This is a it was a it was an insurrection. This should be cut and dry. 
This should be lock them up. It should be very easy. And yet here we are. I, I, so I, I agree with that. I also would like to point out that Trump is definitely the prohibitive favorite to be the Republican oh. nominee next year. That the polls that showed DeSantis creeping up on him, those seem to have gone away. That the most recent polls I've seen, like in New Hampshire, showed Trump with more than fifty percent of support in the primary voters there. He's apparently going to Iowa next week. Yeah, that he, that his campaign's been a little bit slow to get started, but I I don't see anybody taking him out, and especially if there's a group of people going after him. Nikki Haley is, is going nowhere right now in the polls. Ron DeSantis still hasn't said he's going to run, and he may just be biding his time. But isn't that point. it, Eric? I mean, only Nikki Haley and Donald Trump went to CPAC this year. Everybody else is on the sidelines. I wonder what <clears> happens when, in fact, Mike Pence makes a full-throated effort or when DeSantis really does start to campaign. I think that there might be one-on-one competition for trump i think if you had desantis against trump that desantis might be able to might be able to beat him one-on-one but if you've got a bunch of different republicans trying to knock off trump like you had uh eight years ago that you would have that you would have uh you know trump getting the plurality in a lot of these a lot of these primaries and all you need is a plurality to claim all the delegates so i think the more the merrier as far as trump is concerned when it comes to challengers can you believe then how close we are to Trump-Biden again. Now, four years later, we're going to look at another Trump-Biden campaign again, and one of them will be president again. And I don't Mm -hmm. want either of those things to happen. So (laughs) it's like Groundhog Day over here. I I do think it's interesting. And uh, I think when DeSantis enters the race, that is an argument to be made too, right? Like you were, and this is very unusual, only once in American history that you would then elect a lame duck president the moment he takes office, right? There is power in, uh, you know, have obviously Biden would be a, a lame duck president at that moment as well, too. But like one that's won two elections, uh, you're electing someone that can't run again. It's it's interesting. I think it's an interesting argument for DeSantis and any other Republican to make is if you want to usher in a new era of conservative politics. But I think that's a little too nuanced. Oh, Donald, Donald Trump would be a lame duck president. Immediately, right. He well, can't run again. As so. would Biden be, but at least that's an extension of his previous term. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, and I think the question also remains, will people turn out for Donald Trump again based on what happened on the midterms, based on January 6th, uh, based on the fact that he's never won a popular vote? Will would, they turn out for him or against him? They'll go against. Yeah, I mean— Joe I, Biden would love a Donald Trump matchup again. Agreed. He'd love it. It'd be so favorable to him. Um, another Republican, though, maybe not. But I, I agree with Brandon. I think Donald no Trump is the you think best Joe Biden beats Donald Biden. Trump. You don't think Joe Biden beats Ron DeSantis? Donald Trump. I think Joe Biden about- still could beat Ron DeSantis, but I think Ron DeSantis puts up, puts up a better fight than Trump will. I think I think Trump energizes the wrong the people. Trump doesn't want energized, right? Like you're going to see. It, it, it helps. It helps Biden. That, that helps energize people for Biden against Trump. If you have DeSantis, I'm not sure there's enough energy. I get or that. I get urgency that. around DeSantis for yeah. that to happen. You feel me? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that a lot of people voted for Biden because Trump was in the race. If yep. Trump's not yeah. in the race, maybe they don't show up. And Trump candidates in the Senate did terrible. And Glenn Youngkin is like the one GOP win in 2021. And it wouldn't be let anywhere near the Glenn Youngkin campaign, right? Like there is clear advantage for Democrats if Donald Trump 
is the nominee. But I do think that strikes a fear in Democrats' hearts about what could happen during those four years if he if he won. I think it's like I was. Uh, I, yeah, I was saying that in 2016, John. I was saying, <laughs> oh, this is a, this is great. He's going to nominate this idiot Donald Trump, and Hillary Clinton's going to win all 50 states, and and uh, I ate those words. How many? Yeah. Say- <laughs> but demonstrably, it's like completely changed. The landscape has changed. I mean, I'm not saying it's a guarantee Biden beats. I just think that Biden's best chances against Donald Trump. You want someone whose unfavorables are grossly higher than their favorables. And Donald Trump, through his presidency and beyond, has never had a more favorable opinion over his unfavorables. That is absolutely the kind of person you want to run against. Is Joe Biden right side up on that right now? Is his favorite? No, he's under, but he's doing better. I think the uh, poll of polls, right, is like 44% approve and 51% disapprove. But disapproval is different than favorability ratings. They're two different kind of things because a lot of Democrats say they disapprove of Joe Biden, but they are favorable for him. So a lot of pollsters like looking at that favorable question as in more of an indicator for how someone will vote as opposed to approval, which Joe Biden is underwater on. Does that, if that made any sense? I did, which frightens me, frankly. Talk about nuanced. I mean, that is <laughs> that is an interesting dive. Yeah, it's just a, more of a leading indicator of, of political success is favorability as opposed to approval. Hey, can, can I close by asking Brandon <laughs> for his response to the cancellation of Southside? Because I've become a real fan of that show. Uh, I just yeah. started watching it, and your recommendation was one of the reasons why I started watching it. What a great show. And I just was wondering, yeah. I haven't talked to you since I got the news that they canceled it. It needs a new streaming home immediately because it really is. I, I yelled out loud, no, when I saw the news. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's, just, it's, like, it's like the downside of streaming TV and the, the, the fatigue I have with it. No, they, none of these companies released their data or their numbers for why they decide to keep shows. Um, the margin just feels really off for why you keep a show. And I just feel like the leash is shorter for shows to have that opportunity. So when you don't, when you have all this vagueness going around, and there's been a clear audience for Southside on HBO, it's gotten great critical reception. To pull it like that, I don't know if it's a cost-cutting measure, I don't know what it is, but it's just not right. So I'm hoping it finds a new home, maybe Netflix, uh, maybe maybe Prime, maybe Apple TV, or maybe, you know, NBC, ABC, somebody like that. But it deserves something because, yes, laugh out loud, hilarious, authentically Chicagoan. Um, and I think they were really diving into exploring these characters further in a really cool way. So uh, we need some more. We need to save it. There's a petition going around, so go find that. Is there? Well, if you send me the link, I'll put it in the Picayune Sentinel because I, I mean, I think it's a terrific show, and I, I, I had the same reaction when they canceled. Like, oh come on! And I feel like a lot of people maybe don't watch it because they think like, oh, this is this is about black people, and I'm not a black person. But it's it is hilarious. You know, for anybody to watch that show, I really recommend it. Do you think it, you, you're a little biased, Eric, because you're a Chicagoan? No, not not particularly, no. I, I don't think you have to be a Chicagoan at all to, to enjoy the show. It's, it's set on the south side, but there, there are not a ton of in-jokes. I think that, uh, you know, the, the, the plot, the characters, very familiar, uh, very likable characters. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I was really pleased, and uh, Brandon was among those who pointed me to it recently, and I... Big 
John, you streaming anything right now? You binging anything? Ah, uh, no. We've been watching. I've been trying to get Enrique into The Sopranos, and I'm on season five, and he still hates it. And it's uh, what? I know. It's, it's not hate. He, he doesn't like the slow nature of it. I love slow moving shows, oh. and it's. I I, I feel bad because twice a week I basically drag him to the couch and say we're gonna watch say uh five seasons i think he's made an effort give the Uh, guy a break he's trying get another Uh, tv something and i keep on promising i'm like well hold on (laughs) wait till long-term parking that episode like blows your mind and then we see it and okay how about you brandon anything else you're looking at yeah let me tell you the last of us on hbo is one of the best shows out there it's so good that i have had to take breaks from it because of how emotionally draining and wrecking it can be but in a good way like you want good tv good writing good character drama it's it's a zombie show but you barely see any zombies because it's so focused on the human storytelling and like uh, i've I've run out of episodes to say are the best episode three is going to win an emmy probably a lot of emmys episode four is going to win a lot of emmys eight oh my god so good like if you haven't started the last of us yet you absolutely should and it's breaking HBO streaming records. Like, really? It had a 74% growth from the season premiere, uh, episode eight. So I saw a 74% audience growth. And the season one premiere was also a record breaker for HBO. So people are really responding well to it. And I think it speaks to the sort of sense of dread a lot of people have uh, that the world is ending. They're seeing an apocalyptic show. It has a lot of really great human emotional uh, driven character development i think we're really drawn to that well brenda was watching that and i said wait a minute this is walking dead how is this uh, new fantastic show uh, <laughs> so better so much really, better. Uh, maybe i should give it a try it must be better than daisy jones in the six because i'd heard that was kind of a fun show to watch and it's sort of this fictional group that reminds you a lot of fleetwood mac and how they came together blah 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 so we're watching it. Riley Keough, is that her name? Elvis's granddaughter has got one of the lead parts, and it's, it's fine. <laughs> but, but but you're also halfway through it before you realize it's not going to get great. And then you thought, well, I'm halfway through it. I might as well finish this thing. So that's where I am right now. Can, can I recommend one other thing really quickly? Sorry, since the Sopranos one went uh, sour for uh, my spouse. We really liked it. It's a 2018 movie. But I just it, I think it's new on Netflix. It's called Bathtubs Over Broadway. It's a documentary written by and, and starring the former uh, head writer for David Letterman. And on the Letterman show, he used to do a bit where he'd find these albums and they were like corporate musical albums like Chevron used to put on like its own musical in-house. So he'd do a bit where he'd show these albums and he went on this incredible journey trying to find and he became obsessed with these musicals that were written for corporate audience. Like, like it's like the um, Sitco Petroleum musical. And it, they got show tunes in there. And, like, big actors. Martin Short used to do these, like, when he was on the up and up. There was so many famous Broadway stars that got their start in these corporate – or made money, actually, yeah. in these corporate musicals. And it's just a really delightful hour and a half of watching uh, this this little journey. And isn't there a whole subculture that's into that? Yes, 
Yeah, and he finds these people, and like him and like four other people are the only people on eBay that bid on these every time they come to be found. But wasn't there a holy grail of them too? Wasn't there one album that he was looking for? Yeah, I think it's bathtubs or what was it? Uh, I can't remember that. But it's it's a play on the title. It's one of the bathtub ones. It was like a it was a one of the companies. I don't know if it was Whirlpool or what, <laughs> but they made a musical had a love song in it and. The music's really good, and he actually came to the Chicagoland area, found one of the original writers who then dug through his attic, and they played the songs on the piano. I mean, it's it's just funny that there was this subculture of Broadway, and it's really gone out of favor for the most part now, that it's a training ground for people to you know do it and to learn it, and it's all for corporate. They pay millions of dollars for these productions. If producer P can find it online, I'll ask him to tag the end of this podcast with a little okay. from that, John. So, Eric, that will ensure that people listen all the way through to the end of the pod, <laughs> which is what uh, – by the way, I did see the numbers on that. The people that do listen to this podcast, maybe not this episode, tend to listen <laughs> to the whole podcast. Our, our, our time spent listening is pretty good on the pod. Good. But maybe we should end it now. Hey, Brandon, with your beard, nice to see you again, as always. Good to see you too, man. I'm, I'm sad I missed all the mayoral talk, but hey, we got, we got a whole new race upon us, right? Yeah, and <laughs> about four more weeks to talk about it, so we'll keep mm-hmm. everybody posted on that. John Hansen and Eric Zorn were produced by Pete Zimmerman and Ben Anderson. I'm John Williams, and we'll drop another podcast on you next week. See you guys. Hey, Eric, are you still uh, down south, Eric, by the way? Are you still in South Carolina? Still in Savannah. Yeah, still in Savannah. No, Georgia. Well, thanks for doing it long distance. See you, boys. Good to see you both. Thank you. Thanks, John. See you tomorrow. Subscribe to the Mincing Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify, or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com.